Fangori has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and is delivered right to your front door four times a year. Each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including, from time to time, your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, well, you'll need to subscribe, and to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and, well, sign up. KingCast listeners are in the family, so all you need to do to save a whopping 25% off your entire order is to use the code KingCast at checkout. Now, with all that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today, we are talking about The Shining with a very special guest. You'll know his work as the writer-director behind 2019's The Hole in the Ground and the upcoming Evil Dead Rise, which I have seen and can say it's a banger. There may be some parallels, actually, between Stephen King's tale of familial horror and our guest's entry in the Evil Dead universe, but we'll get to that in a second. First things first, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lee Cronin to the KingCast stage. Thank you. Yeah, very very pleased to be speaking to you guys um, and excited for this conversation. I'm very excited to be talking to you, not only because of the movies that you've done, um, but you are the first Irish accent that we have had on this show. Mm. And I love a good Irish accent. And I'm, I'm often told my accent is not heavily Irish, but to your ear, I will take that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm from Texas, so of, of course it would. It's probably a little more acute than it, it might be in, uh, in your homeland, of course. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll put on the best brogue I can for you. Yeah, well, we thank you for being here. How did you uh, How did you enjoy being in Austin recently with uh, with the world premiere of the movie? Yeah, man, like straight up, it was like one of the best weeks of my life, both professionally and <laughs> Like I'd heard how great uh, South by Southwest was. Austin was always a town I really wanted to visit. Um, and I think I got my timing just right. I, I went for a week. So I got in like three, four days before the premiere. So I got to kind of soak up some of the atmosphere of the festival meet a lot of like-minded, you know, really cool individuals and then and then got to ride the um the energy wave of that screening and the couple of days afterwards. So it was a very very special moment and and kind of necessary catharsis with this movie because you know, Evil Dead movies are not easy to no movies are easy to make, but Evil Dead movies are particularly difficult mm. and um I'd traveled across the world from Ireland for 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 8 months to New Zealand to make it, which included a 2-month COVID lockdown no rap party or real celebration at, for, for the work that I've done. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so, so getting to Texas and getting some of the key team there, my producers were there, the cast were there, some family and friends and things like that. It was a really, like a, a long overdue but necessary celebration. And um, South by Southwest is kind of a, you know, when you're a filmmaker, sometimes you don't want to go to a festival if you don't have something happening. Um, you feel like a bit of a hanger honor, but South by mm. I would go back to just gladly as a guest just to enjoy the uh, the atmosphere. So yeah, a, a truly fantastic time. I'm yeah. kind of surprised to realize that Hole in the Ground wasn't a fantastic fest. That is a fantastic fest movie through and through. <laughs> yeah, or was sure. it? And you didn't go? No, it wasn't. It was a timing thing. Um, I think from memory, I think my short film Ghost Train played fantastic fest, and I keep on. Mm. Or, or I'm misremembering. I think it did. But I'm actually hoping to attend this year. I've, I've had conversations with some people um, and I'm hoping to, to maybe just be there for a few days because I've heard uh, what, a, what a cracking occasion that is. Also, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like prepare yourself. But the hole in the ground came out. You see, we premiered at Sundance late January 2019. And then the movie was released on like the 1st of March. Um, so I did get to attend a lot of festivals internationally with it as it rolled out because unlike this movie which is like global release on the same the same date the hole in the ground kind of popped up in different territories over the course of 2019 and often was was alongside a a festival um screening of some sort 
so yeah we did we were we were kind of done and dusted by the time fantastic fest came around and actually a lot of the horror festivals that happen towards that end of the year in, into the fall and around halloween time but yeah i definitely want to get to fantastic fest at some point though yeah oh, it's, you should. it's basically south by only all in one location and uh a little drunker it's, yeah, it, it is a fucking blast. You would, I you would love it. That. I can, I, I reckon, I could, I could, I could make <laughs> yeah, as, an occasion like that. As, as much as much as South by's, you know, uh, like-minded people, as you said, everybody's there. It's a, it's a big family. There's something way more insular about Fantastic Fest because it is all at the South Lamar Alamo, and even if you never watch a single movie with some of the people there, you will all you'll recognize them because you'll see them in the halls or at the highball afterwards you know there's something about it all being in one focused location that that really does you know kind of drives home that that whole i'm in my element i'm with my people you know kind of feeling it's it's funny you say that because one of the nice things eric that i experienced was all these people that i know from the twitter sphere or online or you know that i'd never met that are involved in Mm -hmm. in the you know the community in the u.s whereas i'm out on my island you know over in ireland Mm -hmm. and it was really nice to actually connect with some of those people that i've known virtually from a distance for a long time um, and that was actually one of the real high points as well about being there mm. running into all the name where you see the names on the badge you're like oh my god i know you yeah you know, and then you don't feel like an asshole for wearing the badge because you know you don't want to be over lanyarding got handed two on day one and i didn't know what to do but you notice everybody's eyes tracking down to figure out who you are oh, so it is a always useful thing. You have to like be really sneaky with it if you want to get away with that at film festivals. You got to like start with a direct eye contact, maybe kind of look over their shoulder a little bit, draw their eyes away from you, and then snap your eyes down at the badge and go, "Ah, okay, so that's your name." Or there's a tr- there's a tricky one which is pre- pretend you're checking if they need a drink, which gives you a reason to cast your eyes down at their glass. <laughs> oh, that's ah, good. Good. Oh, that's real good. Person, I don't know. Do you need a drink? And then you look <laughs> down, and then you're like. They're like, no, no, I'm fine. You're like, oh, that's good to know, Eric. That's cool. Okay, because now you've <laughs> yes. got the name. <laughs> Perfect. Well, our time with you is a little bit more limited, so I, I want to dive into some Evil Dead shit uh, before we jump into The Shining, because we could probably, you know, just, I can already tell, like, if there weren't any time constraints, we could feasibly talk to you for a couple of hours just about The Shining. So I want to dive into some Evil Dead stuff, because, one, the movie fucking rules, Two, whoever's idea was to hand out the uh, the the shredded uh, Leguini afterwards is a fucking genius and needs to uh, get a raise. Whoever marketed that that candy after, because Scott, I don't know if you saw this, but like they, you left the theater and they, you got a a mini um, cheese grater. Uh, mm-hmm. And a bag filled with rope candy that that uh, like <laughs> string, stringy bits of flesh. Very uh, nice, genius. Did you, eat it? Did you eat it? I haven't tried any yet. Of course, I ate it. I mean, yeah. you, well, you haven't seen. We're all doing this over audio. I'm I'm a larger man, so you can't hand me a bag of candy and then go don't eat this. <laughs> so yeah, of course I ate it. Um, but uh, the movie, like I'm, you know, I'm I'm a big Evil Dead fan. I love what Fede did with the reboot. Like I, I, I there isn't like an Evil Dead thing that I don't like at this point, right? I even like some of the shitty video games, you know, because you get to play as Ash. It's fun. Um, so, what was your entryway into this? Like, how how did you get to you know? Obviously, you you had to convince Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert and probably Bruce of like of like, I have a take on this. Were they actively looking to expand uh, Evil Dead at that point? Or did you go to them and say, hey guys, I can't let this opportunity pass without saying this is what I would do with an Evil Dead movie? Yeah, it was kind of a meeting of minds at the right time, in a way. Um, I'd always harbored ambitions to make an Evil Dead movie once mm-hmm. it had been rebooted by Fede back in 2013. Right. And I, you know, I was kind of um, still working my way through the world of short films at that point. And I remember thinking, wow, if there's more to be done, I would really love an opportunity. And I remember at the time I was just signing with my my new agents and they said one of the questions you often get asked is like, what legacy titles, what franchises, et cetera. And there was really very little for me, but top of the list was Evil Dead. And that conversation happened at around the same time that Sam Raimi had seen the hole in the ground at a press screening mm-hmm. put on by A24 in L.A. Um, and I happened to be in town around the same time post Sundance where I was premiering the hole in the ground. So Sam asked if we could, you know, meet and and have lunch. And so I met with Sam and a couple of his executives who had tipped him off to the hole in the ground in the first place. And then he'd gone to see it. And, 
you know, you know, Sam as a filmmaker is very much on on you know my Mount Rushmore. He's a very influential filmmaker um, for me as a as a as an up and comer. And the uh, so you know the opportunity to meet him was really exciting. And all I wanted to do was talk about Evil Dead, but we talked about absolutely everything else because mm-hmm. the nature of those meetings quite often is to share all the different things that you're you're working on. So I was sharing things that I was writing or that I was noodling or trying to write treatments for. And 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 him and his and his production partners that were there were talking about the things that they had, the things that they were thinking about. And it was only right at the end of the conversation that I kind of plucked up the courage to say, so what's up with Evil Dead? Mm. Um, and he said, oh, why are you a fan? And I was like, well, I, I am a fan, like massively since childhood. And, and his eyes kind of lit up because what he told me specifically, he really liked about the hole in the ground was just the filmmaking control. I remember he described (laughs) it as being being quite like, although tonally it's very different to Evil Dead, uh, he really liked the precision and the, I remember he described it as like, you know, a piece of well-machined clockwork, uh, Mm -hmm. how the film kind of of functioned. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he was like, are are you interested? And I was like, absolutely. And I was like, why do you, like, you want to do more? He's like, we really do. And I guess, you know, you use that word, the take thing. They would have been listening to takes for many years, um, right? And and I think what interested them and me was that they instinctively felt I might come at it from a different angle. So I had no pitch in my back pocket. I was it was my last meeting after three weeks of meeting people, and I was about right. to get on a plane back to Dublin. And I thought about it the whole journey home, and then started to to speak to them again, like starting the next week, and hone in on something. And very quickly. I, I was clear that I wanted to change the location, change the type of characters, change the dynamic and hunt down a little bit of a different metaphor. But mm. as I said at the start, the meeting of minds, that's kind of what they were after too, because I'd say at that point they were probably jaded of potentially getting pitches that felt more like fan films than truly mm-hmm. expanding the universe or doing something different. And that's not to say me as a fan outside of being a filmmaker didn't try to bring the elements in that fans would love because I know that that's so important in making something like this. But they were equally as enthused by the fact that I was looking at it just in a very, very different context. And and that was the start. And you can, it's funny how time goes by. That was, you know, four years ago. And here we are just about to release the movie. <laughs> but again, as a filmmaker, you're busy doing different things. And I just had continued discussions and we kept nudging it forward. And I, whenever I was in town, I'd meet with Sam and we nudged it forward until that July when I sat down with Sam, Rob and Bruce over zoom uh, and just pitched them a storyline from A to Z. And, you know, it's that kind of thing of like, you know, a few hours later, your agents call you and they're like, they want to make an offer and they really want to bring you on board to, to take this forward and, and, and own it. And, no. and that's when it just started to get more serious really and, and become something real and very much went to the top of my agenda um because it was something i'd always wanted to to have a i'd say have a stab at is probably the appropriate way to describe. <laughs> which were which were you more excited about were you more excited when you got that call from your agent or more excited when you found out it wasn't going to be an hbo max thing and they were going to put it in theaters <laughs> I, yeah do you know what they come from different pressure points in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and off different experiences so i was i was more confused because there's a little step I left out there which was I had an interim conversation where I gave Rob and Sam in a room the pillars of the story before I gave it to them in detail and that was actually the first agency phone call I got where they said it's mm. yours as in it's off the table they're not speaking to anybody else it's yours to basically screw up or take it to that <laughs> serious point but but knowing it was going theatrical was a very different pressure because I think one of the bits of information that maybe gets lost in the ether is when we went about selling this movie and went into preparation on this movie, we weren't doing it as a HBO Max movie. It was later in preparation because of the knock-on effects of COVID and the choices, in some respects, justifiably that studios were making at that point, that it actually mm-hmm. to HBO Max because it was like, this is where everything's going. And working with great executives and working with the guys at New Line, with Richard Brenner, with Dave Neustadter, with Victoria Palmieri, they just said, look, go make the best movie you can. We still believe that this film can be a theatrical venture. And I still believed it as well, because I felt that once COVID hope, you know, ran out of steam and, you know, people would go back to the theaters. I said, I think a lot of filmmakers out there owe Tom Cruise a beer for clinging on and making sure <laughs> yeah. did what it did what it did and building confidence again. But that call was vital. And it also came at a time with big upheaval at Warner brothers, where 
unfortunately some movies were getting shifted and cancelled so it was a very edgy time and it was definitely once I got the phone call to confirm that we were going theatrical that it was definitely open a a fresh bottle of whiskey kind of moment (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine well I mean to your point it's it's movies like Top Gun or horror movies you know recently smile and barbarian like all these like small horror movies are making you know big impacts and i i think that the theory that that seems to be the most right on is that like post covid post lockdown people just want escapism right they just want to go out have a release and you know so it's going to be comedy it's going to be uh superhero spectacle stuff and it'll be horror movies and yeah to to uh, a great thing it, it's weird horror movies have always been there for for this stuff like the boom of of the universal monster movies you know was was following the great depression and stuff you know so i don't know there, there's something about that maybe there's books out there written about uh, about this phenomenon by people much smarter than me but i i love the idea that horror movies tend to always be the go-to release valve for society after you know some sort of giant shared trauma Absolutely. Yeah. And I think people want to go out and have a good time. Right. And I think it's it's interesting. I think if you look at something like Smile, you look at the Black Phone, you look at Barbarian, mm-hmm. you look at Evil Dead Rise. There's there's a commonality between them, which is that, yes, they still have all the existential things a horror movie need. But at times in these movies, the actual pure joy and entertainment of watching a horror movie goes in the front seat, maybe a little more than you know, pre-COVID, where everything was leaning heavily into the existential as its kind of front foot. And I think there's a commonality in the entertainment factor across those movies. Eric, do you have any, you have, you, you've seen, I have, I have, oh my God. sadly, I have not seen it. So do you have any I, specific I, questions that are I non-spoilery? Have, I, well, yes, yes and no. There's one aspect of this that I would love to talk about, and that is the different Necronomicons and how I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the idea is that we see multiple Necronomicons in Army of Darkness, right? And correct. And one of the Necronomicons from that shot is your Necronomicon. Fede used another one. So this is, was that always the idea was like, that's how it ties into everything? Because even though your movie and Fede's movie are a little bit more, you know, along the lines of the first Evil Dead, you know, trying to be scary, you know, the fact that it could still exist in the same universe as Army of Darkness, uh, I have to imagine was something that 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 uh, for you was a little bit tough. Is but do I have everything right that, that yeah, you're using yeah, you, an economic content? Yeah, you very much do. It was actually something okay. said on one of those occasions, say three or four occasions in the build up to me pitching the full movie to to the guys. Uh, I'd said to Sam, it was just a thought that I'd had. I'd said, look, you had one book, Fede had one book. Give me the third book. They're all there on the table in Army of Darkness, and let's kind of use that as a little bit of a uh, you know, a through line uh, to connect everything, even though it's very subtle and it's kind of small. And even though my book or Fede's book doesn't look like the ones you see in Army of Darkness, certainly with my book, it carries some of the personality of how those books behave because it mm. has a little bit of life and motion to it. You feel like it has a pulse under the surface. And Sam just really liked that idea because there was something clean to that thought. Um, yeah. Almost a way, another way of looking at it, it's like, you know, if you look at the Bible, there's multiple versions of the same story in the Gospels that exist in mm-hmm. the Bible. And that's kind of how I looked at it. And it gave me the creative freedom to create a new book that had its own personality, but that does the same damage, essentially. Mm, well, it's a really smart choice. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I would love to get into but this is with you, but this is airing before the movie comes out, like the, the Wednesday, I think, before the movie comes out. So I won't get spoilery, but uh, I will give you a compliment in that it's not often when you watch a horror movie that has kids or you know teens in it where you go okay well you know everybody's safe in this movie you make it very clear pretty pretty quickly that uh that uh nobody's safe in this film and uh, i always appreciate it when genre movies do that so i'm well i'm 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 glad you you got that vibe from it because the moment i said kids and evil dead we knew that there would have to be big trouble otherwise i would have failed (laughs) (laughs) How do you how do you balance uh, like again I have I haven't seen it yet but I I've been told that it's very much in the Evil Dead spirit right and so I'm wondering uh, given that the Sam Raimi's sensibilities maybe not so much Fede's uh, have a little humor to them um, did you have a f- feeling one way or another when you started out like you wanted it to be more of a horror comedy more of a 
straight up horror thing, something just really gnarly? Like where where was your head at on on that balance? Yeah, I think, look, naturally, I think there's always a little bit of humor, even in the darkest of times and the darkest of things. Even if you're reflected in the real world, people still laugh at funerals, right? You know, even when things are sad or things are, are dismal, there's always a little bit of humor to mine. And I knew that I wanted the tone of the horror, first of all, to just be with a capital H. I wanted it to be a truly frightening experience. I think that was the thing I was going after. And I felt like it was necessary to temper that with the right kind of levity at the right times, which would allow people just to breathe enough so I could push again. Because the structure of the movie, it just keeps building and essentially getting worse for the characters as it goes along. (laughs) Which to me is a little bit of a a nod to Evil Dead 2 structurally, the way it just keeps getting more and more batshit crazy. Um, And so what I really did was I put a lot of focus into making the characters feel real and identifiable so that from their behavior and their dialogue, that you would still raise a smile because they feel familiar. Um, and then in addition, you know, one of the things I adore about Evil Dead, which I'm not saying gets overlooked, but the gore gets talked about first and foremost, usually. Mm. But actually mm-hmm. the psychological warfare that a possessed person, a deadite, imparts onto, you know, uh, you know, a, an innocent person or a loved one or whatever it might be. Because I love psychological horror. And, and again, it's a thing I remember pointing out to Sam and he was really happy to hear was my draw towards that. And I think this movie probably has more deadite dialogue than the other movies combined, potentially. Yeah. Um, and with the structure of a family in this story, it gave me the chance to do that. And once I had that chance, then I had a lot of fun trying to write what I hoped were some kind of killer lines um, and, and, you know, and, and one-liners. And look, no one's ever going to top. It's not even a one-liner. It's a one word. Like Groovy is its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely wanted to get that personality across. And, at the South by Southwest screening, which I attended, and then actually at the European premiere, which we had in Dublin just a few days ago, one of my greatest joys was actually hearing the laughter from the audience at the right places. It's dark humor. Um, it's not a comedy horror. It's absolutely a horror movie, but it, it does have this certain twisted levity baked into it as well. I could uh, once again talk your ear off all those. Maybe you'll come back uh, later on down the line. And we'll do a spoiler special where spoiler we get into the nitty gritty, yeah. but uh uh, but we should probably move into some Stephen King shit. So do you want to regale us, Lee, with your Stephen King origin story at this point? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's connected to um, multiple experiences that I had at a very young age. It's mm. a story I've told before, if anyone's read an interview maybe with me before, but it's probably worth just also setting it up, which is I'm the youngest in my family by about eight years. And therefore, when I was at a very impressionable age, seven, eight, nine years old, my siblings were all hitting late teenage years and my eldest Mm. brother was going into his 20s at that point. So I was exposed to things horror horror movie-wise that I shouldn't have seen at such an impressionable age. I'm glad it happened. Um, So for example, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, my dad showed those to me back to back on VHS when I was about eight or nine years old. I saw Jaws very young. Um, I remember being, you know, I remember seeing it, for example, the TV movie, I think on TV, like the, the two parts over two nights, But The Shining was a movie that was kind of an unforgettable experience because it wasn't as obvious a piece of terror to me. Like at that point, I understood if Freddy Krueger shows up, it's scary, you know, when the, you know, the clown and poltergeist, whatever it might be. But The Shining was this thing I didn't really understand, but it had this very, very powerful impact on me. And it was because it's a story I've told and it's a story I've discussed with my siblings, you know, over the years, my memory's quite clear on it, which was we we watched, again, it, was, it would have been VHS. I would have been less than 10. So it would have been like, I don't know, maybe like 1991 or something like that. We put it on, on like a Friday evening. We got interrupted before Room 237, called by <laughs> our mother to have dinner. So up to that point, it's like watching this kind of, strange unsettling drama but again i'm really young so i don't know how to process that and and then going back and watching the second half of the movie where there were those more visceral elements and the temperature of the movie really started to rise and it's set in motion like how i react to movies that really terrify me which is i don't sleep for about three nights and i can i can slowly add darkness back into my bedroom over those three nights as i get to grips with what i've just seen so I was terrified, didn't know why, was waking the family up, couldn't sleep. 
And at the time, my dad was away on business. I think he was in the US on business. And he returned just just as I'd recovered from the experience of seeing the movie, getting the reports on how things had been while he was away. Oh, Lee was a little pain in the ass. Why was he a pain in the ass? We showed him The Shining and he's like, well, that'll do it. Um, <laughs> but but what, it, what it did was it reminded him um, that he hadn't seen it since it had been released in theaters because my dad's a big fan of horror movies. Speaking of which, it was a real joy to have him at the European premiere the other day. He's 81 years old now and he had a ball watching the movie. And, nice. oh, that's wild. And, uh, yeah, it was just so, so, so fun. And um, he, uh, so he was reminded that he hadn't seen The Shining since it had been released in, in, in theaters. So he went and rented it. And I learned a very important lesson. It's when I learned the importance and power of the soundscape in a movie. Because I'm in bed and he's rented The Shining. I didn't know he'd rented it. And now I'm hearing this movie come up from the sitting room downstairs into my bedroom. And it started the cycle of fright all over. <laughs> Terrified me to my core. And I couldn't sleep again for a number of nights. And then many years later, not many years later, but four or five years later, he went away on business another time. And he forgot to hand in his room key in whatever hotel he was staying in. And it was room 237 he brought home. And it hung in my hallway for years and years <laughs> and years. So it was a very personal experience and a movie that um, it's, it's, um, it's oddness, both of its structure, performance. I would say that temperature of the horror in it, married with the way the performances are. It just had this really big impact that I'm unable to escape whenever I sit down to put pen to paper. That's a, a great origin story. You you also hit on something that we've we've tracked a lot with the people of uh that were born in a certain generation. It, it was it's the Shining and, and the It miniseries always tend to to be the ones. If if we talked to we've had some you know older people on the show and their version of of like oh the thing that traumatized me was Salem's Lot the Toby Hooper Salem's Lot thing. But if you, you know, those are people born in the seventies, if you're born in like the eighties or, you know, the early to mid eighties, it's always going to be the shining in, in the it miniseries. And it's interesting um, you say it because my older brother, as I was explaining, he's like, he's a good 12, 13 years older than me. Salem's yeah. not was the one that got him. We were only yep. speaking about horror movies on Saturday. And he said, if he stays anywhere strange or creepy or like a country hotel or anything, he cannot sleep facing the window. He has to turn his back. And that's all because <laughs> of Salem's lot. There might be a Glick boy floating out there. You never yeah. know. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting to me because The Shining, you said that that you can't escape that no matter uh, at what point creatively. And there is some parallel between The Shining and your Evil Dead movie. You don't have uh, a Jack Torrance. You have a mom turning against her family. Mom uh, Torrance. The, yeah, Mama, Mama, Torrance. Mama Torrance. <laughs> Mama Torrance. Um, and, and there's also maybe a bloody elevator uh, reference or homage in, in there. there so so did you know at the time that uh, The Shining was having a big impact on on uh, what you're doing? Or is that just kind of come when your your basic idea for a story is going to be familial you know, yeah. horror? You yeah, know? It's, it's, it's a great question because it's something I've been thinking about only in detail recently, when, when you finish a movie and you get some time to talk and reflect with people, you start realizing things that you didn't realize. Um, and I think recently, for example, I was thinking, can I write a horror movie that isn't about family? Because the first two feature films I've made are about family. And I'm working on another movie right now that also has that kind of structure, although it's a very different movie to what I've done before. And I, I kind of panicked and I was like, oh, my God, can I tell a story? is isn't about family and has this got under my skin so much that it's all I can write about and then I was like I'm okay with that you know as long as I can tell original stories but I'm drawn back to the horror of domestic circumstance and I didn't realize that aspect of The Shining had the influence it had until I've been asked questions recently like you just asked mm. so there's obviously specific things like the blood elevator um, that's in that's in the movie but what's interesting about influence is that if it's deep inside you, you don't really necessarily know that come out. So to right. give an example, um, people have seen the trailer, so it's not that spoilery, but you know, an elevator bursts open with, with some, with some blood, with, with a, some blood, with all of the blood. <laughs> yes. um, and um, from, from that point of view, I didn't sit down and go, I want to do a blood elevator. And again, I don't want to spoil anything now, but it was actually a function of a need for plot, how to mm. travel some characters safely with a, in an elevator where something would cushion their fall. 
And it wasn't until after I wrote it that then I went, oh, goodness, OK, that's a blood elevator. I wasn't thinking about it in those <laughs> terms, but obviously it was under my skin. And, and now that I've become aware of it, I was this new script that I was working on. I put in a very, very intentional tip of the cap uh, to The Shining where some characters are in a hotel. Surprise, surprise. And um, it, their first encounter in this hotel and they're walking up a corridor with flashlights and one person doesn't have a flashlight and they trip over something and they hear a dinging sound and everybody turns around scared and points and it's an upturned three-wheeler tricycle on the floor. But that was a very intentional. <laughs> I want to put this in this scene. But actually, it, when I was writing Evil Dead Rise, I was really only thinking about the Evil Dead universe. And right. then I just let whatever other influences I had flow. So I've had people come to me since and talk about things like, you know, the things like The Thing has been mentioned as well. But it wouldn't have been something I was necessarily honing in on. But I do think a family in danger, a family in peril, um, you know, is something that's so well drawn, you know, first of all, in the book. And then obviously uh, in, in how the book developed into, you know, a visual medium. So I think that's something that that pr- probably had a big impact. But just like in Jaws, there's a family in peril, you know, and, yeah. and that's, that's a movie that that has big influence on me as well. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's something that's there and I don't want to let it out because I, I, you know, it, it, it feels like quite a powerful tool. What do you make of Kubrick in general? You know, I know you're a, you're a director of film for all I know. It's like, you know, it's just obligated that you're a fan, but yes. <clears throat> you know, what are your, what are your favorites that he's done? Like, what do you make of that guy and his, his methods? Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm a really, really big fan. Um, from the point of view of that, even if you don't necessarily love one of his movies or every aspect of one of his movies, they're so muscular, they're so well formed, they're so well researched that that you kind of sometimes you look at yourself as a filmmaker and you know you worry about what you're doing, when you do, and can you do more? How do I make more movies? How do I do it faster? And then you know, so you look at say Woody Allen just was spitting out movies every eight months or whatever it might be. And then you look at Kubrick and it's like, he's just got this beautiful collection of, um, of oddities, you know, that are, that are so well formed. So like, I actually love the range that he has. I think one of my favorite tools in storytelling is dread. People say, are you a horror guy? It's like, I'll tell a story without a ghost or a monster, but the tool of dread and the tension that that creates is enormous. And that dread you know is you know exists in so many of his works outside of the shining as well like if you think about full metal jacket if you think about eyes wide shut which to me remains like i'd have the more i think about it i wonder is eyes wide shut my number two Mm. um man i am fucking excited to hear you say that i'm a i'm a huge eyes wide shut fan and uh i I can't even it's like it's one of those movies you can't even mention it on Twitter without a bunch of clowns wandering into your mentions like the movie fucking sucked. It had no point. It's like, no, you weren't paying attention. That is a mm-hmm. that is a brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's fun. I think it's phenomenal. And I got to I saw it on the big screen when it came out and I got to rewatch it a few years ago. There was a re-release and I loved it even more. Um, and it's also it, despite its, you know, despite its darkness and its weirdness, it's actually quite a like fun and quotable movie amongst people that really like it you know that kind of yeah. way um or there's just s- such beautiful imagery in it w- one other one that i i really adore and it's you know they sometimes just there's a, a movie that just slips past <clears> you and you don't watch till years later was barry linden which i only yeah. finally caught up with maybe about seven or eight years ago um and i've only watched it once and i keep on meaning to rewatch it because again it was it's 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 strange and i didn't necessarily love every aspect of the movie but at the same time, I just felt like I was watching something very, very special. I think that's what he does. The way he packaged his stories and the way he presented them to an audience, like, and some of them are long, but you're, you're just never bored on the journey of, of, of how he, you know, how he brings you into the world and how he kind of controls you, you know? Um, and I like filmmakers that hold my hand in a way and bring me in somewhere. I get to peek behind the curtain with them and experience their ideas. Muscular, which is a word you used earlier, is a perfect way to put it. Yeah. There's no there's there's no filler in a Kubrick film. You know what I mean? It's just like it's very rich. You can I can go back and watch any Kubrick movie, and I do a lot, and every single time I watch one of them, and you can name any of them, I'll notice something different that I never, never noticed before. 
that's um that's a, a level of attention to detail that I think is pretty uncommon in a lot of the movies that we're getting today. Mm -hmm. You know, I think from what's, what's really unique actually in you in you saying that is I probably watched The Shining a minimum of twice a year for the last you know at least the last fifteen years, and every time I watch it. I actually forget the structure of the movie as intimately as I know it. There's something about the way you get drawn in. I'm not saying it feels like the first time, but I always forget the order of events because I get so mm -hmm. wrapped up in the moment. And if you can get an audience wrapped up in the very moment you're experiencing, I think you're doing a really great job. And I think he's quite special in terms of, of that control. Mm. I'm, I'm curious what you think. You know, uh, Stephen King was famously not a fan of the movie when it came out. Um, he's sort of softened on it in the, you know, in the years since, and particularly in the wake of Dr. Sleep, uh -huh. um, which, uh, he was a big fan of. Which I thought was and, awesome. I really, oh yeah, that. fuck yeah, it is. Oh, good. Um, but most of you know, his complaints were that Jack was, you know, a little too obviously crazy from the beginning and that mostly it just wasn't a good adaptation of the novel. It's mm -hmm. a perfectly reasonable argument to make. It is not, uh. A, a tremendously faithful adaptation of that material. But I'm wondering what you think, do you, what responsibility, if any, does a filmmaker have towards the author of a source, the source material he's adapting to make it accurate? Or do you think that once an adaptation gets launched, it's like, that's it. It becomes the filmmakers because it's a completely different thing. I don't think that it's, it becomes the filmmaker because I think that the, the essence and the DNA of what it is will usually survive. I think if you adapt to a mm -hmm. point that it's no longer really connected, then it's no longer an adaptation. But I do think just like someone, just like an, you know, an author sitting down to write a book and facing the blank page, it's the same challenges for a screenwriter if they're purely adapting or a filmmaker, if they're writing and directing or taking a screenplay forward. And the, the madness of movie making is like once you cross the line and 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 jump into those trenches like all bets are really off you know mm -hmm. you end up making choices sometimes that aren't even necessarily things you wanted but you're having to react to the circumstances that you're in and you can't really apologize to anybody for that because it's in the title you're there to like steer that ship home right. and even if that hits the rocks not quite where you wanted it to or you end up stopping off at a different port along the way it's usually for necessary reason so I think once you enter into that medium and all of the mechanics that go with it, because at the end of the day, writing is, you know, maybe if there's co-writers, but let's just take it as a single writer. It's one mind and it's one machine in terms of what they're typing on uh, and, and what they're putting down. But when you cross the line into the world of filmmaking, you're also taking on board the opinions of lots of creative people that are running different departments, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's not oh, to yeah. say it just lets them run free. But the point is, as you're funneling all of those thoughts into something, you very much have to maintain a certain open mindedness in what you do. I often look at it a little bit like my job is like I'm a filter of opinions. I answer questions and I put them through my filter and it spits all that out on a wall. And I've got a rough idea of where I want it to hit on the wall. But when you're firing all this stuff through that filter, some bits may go off in different directions and you might like that and have to jump on them and track them. And I'm not saying that's Kubrick because I'm sure he had absolute mastery over every little detail the way he wanted it. And um, mm -hmm. I don't believe as much as there's so much lore around the shining, I don't believe that every little continuity error and every little thing was, <laughs> right. was planned. I that's yeah. filmmaking, right? That's all there's right. things that were, but that's also just filmmaking too. Um, so I do think, you know, if I'm working, I've not adapted a piece of work yet. Um, and I would show great respect to the source because it would be the source that drew me in in the first place. But nonetheless, if a, if a filmmaker is going to take it on and put their vision on it, then you've got to let them go. Because if you don't, you're right. going to get something that just feels unformed. Well, you mentioned you mentioned that you haven't like adapted stuff, but you kind of have. I mean, you you had a similar challenge diving into the Evil Dead universe where even though you're not adapting a novel or a pre-existing story, you are tonally needing to fit your, your story into something that came before. Right. Mm -hmm. And what you do very well is that you, you can, and what I think Kubrick does very well actually in this, uh, uh, in this uh, comparison um, 
you know, I, I understand the it's not a faithful adaptation, but I've always stuck with tonally. It is extremely faithful. I, I get the same feeling watching The Shining as I do when I read the book. Like mm-hmm. that is translated perfectly. And I, you had a similar challenge with Evil Dead. You had to tonally make it feel like it fits with what people expect from an Evil Dead thing. Well, also going at the same time, you don't need to have the whole thing take place in a cabin in the woods for, for you to get that, that feeling, you know, you're able to, to, uh, to throw that on there. So I don't know, maybe I'm bending myself into pretzels trying to once again, compare you, <laughs> your, you and your work to Kubrick's, uh, uh take I'll, on. I'll, t- on I'll, I'll take but... that compliment all day. Um, yeah. but the, <laughs> yeah, no, you're not, you're not wrong. And I think the thing that you hit on there is the, um, it's tone, right? Like, I think tone mm-hmm. is the most important thing. Like, I'll watch a movie that's never going to be better than a three-star movie concept-wise, but if it does what it says on the tin and the tone is consistent, that's a five-star mm-hmm. movie to me, you know? Right. Um, and I think getting tone right is is vital. And I think in approaching Evil Dead, it was very important that, um, although it is painted in a different way and it's in a very different context, um, I absolutely wanted people to walk away going, I just watched a new Evil Dead movie. So can we talk a little bit about the character of Jack Torrance here? Um, the reason, once again, this is another Evil Dead connection, but you know, you have you have a theme of, of a mother turning against her children in your movie. This is a father turning against uh, his family. There is something that I think every single one of us can relate to uh, that kind of horror of somebody that you trust that's there to protect you uh, turning the opposite and there's something horrific about it. There's something horrific when you hear stories of like, you know, mother killing or drowning her kids or something there's that's even worse than if a stranger had just drowned the kids for some reason. Right. Cause there's a, there's a level of trust there. Um, so what, what do you think about that as kind of a, uh, I don't know, a, a, a jumping off point for, for a horror story in particular, like that, that, you know, do you find that that's as uh, weird and effective to you? Um, yeah, as I find it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's rock. It's rocket fuel for telling a horror story. And I think yeah. we talked about family a little bit just to bring it connected to that. I think why I'm drawn to stories about family and stories about home for horror contexts. It's essentially a beautiful shortcut to create quick familiarity for an audience so that they can identify with a world and a space and a set of people, and then that gives right. you more time to go and scare them. And I think. You know, I can even draw a little bit of a line back from, say, Evil Dead Rise to my movie, The Hole in the Ground, which hits on that very thing that you just touched on, which is I I remember being presented with the first poster for that movie and um, the tagline written on the poster. It said, fear the unfamiliar. And I contacted the distributor and said, no, no, that's not what this movie is. The movie is fear the familiar. That's Mm. the frightening part. Fearing something unfamiliar is normal. Fearing something familiar is actually truly terrifying. And I think when I was making The Hole in the Ground, although it's about, say, a mother and her son, you don't necessarily need to be a parent to understand the concept of somebody close to you, whatever role they are in your life, whether they're a partner, a lover, a business colleague, a best friend, whatever it might be. If you see that person in a different light, you can then identify with the innate fear of, of how that feels. So for example, you know, if you build a new friendship or get a, maybe a romantic rela- relationship is a good way of looking at it and everything's rosy and you have your first argument and you see that person cry for the first time mm. or scream for the first time, that is one of the most terrifying things in the world. So if you then turbocharge that with the idea of your mother or a parent who's so familiar to you and then you subvert all that's good about them and you put them into that evil place like we do in Evil Dead Rise or like where Jack Torrance goes in The Shining, it's, 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 it's a really, really powerful tool to unsettle because nobody really wants to face that situation. And also, nobody would want to be that person either, to be the one that, that becomes the, the object of terror. Mm. Do you have a favorite performance in this film? In The Shining? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um it's 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 got to be Jack Nicholson. Like it's they, they're all doing their own thing so well. You know what I right. mean? Right. Um, but I actually love the temperature of his performance. I love the um, and it's a rare occasion because I actually dislike horror movies where people know it's almost like characters are aware they're in a horror movie from the get go. You know that, mm-hmm. that kind of tonality 
um, which I always try and avoid. But it, it, it works in The Shining because it's not that you're quite in a horror movie yet. You're just you just feel like you're in a twisted drama to begin. Um, but I do love how willing he was to kind of go there with it. Um, and 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 I think the, the the change that he goes through and becomes so out of control um, is that's not an easy thing for an actor to do and maintain that because it's something I spoke about with um, the actors on Evil Dead Rise quite often. Like the hardest thing of all is to stay right up there, to stay in that place of panic, to have the heart rate that high and to be able to illustrate that that's where your kind of psychology is at, at that moment in time. But I think, look, there are, you know, there's, there's really only three of them in a way, you know, in terms of there's obviously other cast, but, but those three, um, they're all kind of doing the Lord's work. Mm. I think I, I, I agree with everything you just said, of course. I, but I think like, I don't think it's my favorite performance, but I think the most undersung is Scatman Crothers. Yeah. Mm. Thing. I mean, yeah. he had a fucking, just like, you know, uh, Shelley Duvall, he had a pretty tough time filming this movie because of, uh, you know, Kubrick's methodology and, you know, the the pressure that he was putting on the actors. I don't get that impression uh, that that was the case with Jack. But um, but I think yeah, I, I think uh, Scatman Crothers brings just such a like th- because the whole thing is so family centric. Um, I, I think he brings like a really unique flavor to the movie in that he is this this outsider and casts such a large shadow over the story, even though like he's comparatively not in it that much, you know, that whole, that whole scene where he's walking Wendy through the the pantry is one of my favorite scenes in a movie. And it's just him listing shit off. <laughs> it's just yeah. in a pantry. Yeah. Um, I, I love that guy's presence. I think the presence is the interesting thing because um, he like, he he is in a sense he's probably the closest to you the viewer in the movie he's the outside observer but he's also i think what's different is as opposed to just being the the everyman that's like watching something bad that's happening it's also through supernatural means that he's observing and feeling and that makes it all the more unsettling as well it's quite a rare combination mm. yeah he has point. some some all-timer line deliveries like i'll always remember what you mean you're not supposed to? I don't know why, but, <laughs> but just the way he does it, like it, it, it's so authentic for whatever reason. It just reads as like, yeah, I can see like, you know, grandma or grandpa, you know, reacting exactly, exactly that way. Um, I think one of the undersung performers here is Philip Stone as Grady. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's again, he doesn't get much to, to do you know but like the little bit of time he has you know just thinking about how he shifts from the bumbling waiter totally. you know character into the the menacing uh you know presence the face of the overlook for for a second in the the bathroom scene with nicholson you know where he's you know starts nakedly uh pushing him towards the violence that he's he's already on the precipice of doing uh, I don't know. There's just something that's so delightful in it. Like there's a twinkle in his eye that will always catch me. Like, you know, whenever he's rolling his R's, when he's like, correct them. Correct. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like he is, it, it's so delicious. And like, you can see the hunger of the hotel through that performance. It is one that like, I, I become more and more fascinated by the more I watch the movie. Um, especially when you realize that, yeah, at that point, that is just like Lloyd, the bartender, you know, isn't actually a person, you know, that is the hotel speaking to Jack. Mm-hmm. And just in this moment, that is Grady speaking to Jack, you know, through the, you know, the hotel speaking through the image. The, it's it's uh, the slight joy you, yeah. when he makes that turn. It's the slight joy that you that you sense off him in like passing along this curse, passing along the baton in a way mm-hmm. like that. There's there's just there's it's like it's like all of our planning, all of our plotting, all of that weight. It's like now we have this fresh meat and you can you can feel that kind of pleasure coming across when he when he makes his turn can i ask you just as a filmmaker when you watch something like the shining and you note that that oppressive tone that we keep like dancing around is held so long and is played so masterfully and you know there are moments when uh nicholson uh, you know, or, you know, Kubrick through, through his, you know, direction, like they'll, that they'll like let off the, the steam valve a little bit, you know, where something will play as funny or whatever. Like, can, can you just talk about like watching something like the shining 
and knowing when uh, to alleviate that pressure. Um, is that something that you note? And is that something that you've like adapted in your own work? Yeah, I think it's, it, it is from, from my process. It's something that I plan on the page because I'm quite specific um, right. in, in how I approach that. But then again, it doesn't always quite work out like that on set when you start to bring in the the um, the joyous complication of other opinions and working with actors. Right. And and bringing all of that into the fold. And then you really do. It is it is cliche, but like that, that rewrite in the edit and where you find the 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 strength of those moments um, and and. It's, it is a question I've been asked before. It's like, how do you time a good scare? I, I, I have no idea, really. I just know that I have a bunch of these different tools that I can gather through what I write, the performances mm. I get, the look of the scene, the atmosphere of it, and then the, the editorial process, and then the sound and music. And then I think the real crafting and where you've got to really try and use your skill is in bringing those things together in, um, in, 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 in some sort of cooperation, you know? Uh, but I think like with The Shining, like that, that like you talk about humor every time it gets me that cut to I think it's Wednesday, it says, isn't it? When it just cuts hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, is it Tuesday or Wednesday? I always get confused. I think it's, it's Tuesday. We just talked about this. With a Ali few Kurt. of them, you know, yeah. so that, you might be thinking of different ones. There, there, is, there is the there is the one which I think is is it when he's overlooking the maze. Um, yeah, in the maze and he's overlooking the maze, and then it just gives one of those big clangs. That's yeah. that's kind of like a gag. Um, yep, and it's, and it's really unexpected. And for in a way, for for a for a, a filmmaker like Kubrick to use on screen text, you know what I mean? Like mm. to use an other visual medium than actually being inside the the typical filmic world. I always find it quite funny, but it's it's actually a great tension breaker before you go again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those release valves are kind of important uh, for a movie like this, and, and you know, and you have some in your movie as well. You know, you you need you need to let the audience either scream or laugh at a certain point if you're if you're going to be forcing them through through this Absolutely. stuff. Even like something like Hereditary has has really it's a somber, serious, melodramatic, you know, fuck you up horror movie, but it also knows like you know people are going to laugh when they see a, a, a naked old man in the forest. You know what I mean? Totally. It's like, need, it helps yeah. with rhythm as well. You need, it's, it's sometimes I find it easier when I talk about it in terms of sound. It's like, if you want to have a loud bang, you know, you've got to remember there might be a louder bang later and how you build out the rhythm of all of these things is really important. Um, and I think that, that that's sometimes when you're cutting a horror movie, it's like looking at the hole and realizing you know, the whole extent of it being like, it's, it's, it's way too on fire over here, even though it's great, but we actually need to let a little bit of heat out so that we can right. make it even more, you know, more of a dumpster fire later on. Like how you, how you play it out is, is really important. That, that rhythmic play. Mm. Have you ever uh, had a, a scary experience in a hotel or like a paranormal experience? Well, I've just checked into a new hotel this evening and it's really old in central London and it did cross my mind when I was walking up the stairs. No, I, 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 don't, think I, I don't think I have in a hotel. I actually haven't had any supernatural experiences I can remember in my life, but hmm. my family and some friends have had definitive ones and it's, it, well, definitive to them, but it's interesting um, the time that we're, we're talking because getting to share my new movie with my family and we afterwards got to hang out the next day and spend some time together all we did was kind of recount old ghost stories and and talk about those kind of weird moments and coming from ireland there's there's a lot of good ghost stories <laughs> yeah. but, but more for me it's 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 the like i'm the worst horror movie watcher in the world because i get scared really easily so mm -hmm. even the other night recounting these tales that have been in my family for years i woke up at 2 a.m in my apartment and I had to like take out my phone and like read some sports news because my brain instantly was like, there's something in the corner. There's so something in the corner. Um, and, no. and that's enough. So by proxy, I get scared quite a lot and have had experiences just thinking about other people's terror. Hmm. Yeah, right it's, that, uh, it's that imagination thing. King has actually said that people like it's a curse having a good imagination, you know, for uh, and that's what drives a lot of his writing as a, as a horror novelist because he was saying that. You know, especially in the the era where his kids were very young, he was saying when you're when you have a very vivid imagination, it's great when you're a novelist. But you know, if you are fearing walking in and finding one of your kids had died in their bed over, you know, in their sleep or something, it's like you don't just have that thought cross your mind. You vividly see your 
kid dead in your, in your mind's eye. You can picture uh, that. Yeah, you can you can picture that. Or the way yeah. kids as well can be so scary. Like I've a, I've a little niece. She's not little anymore, but when she was when she was younger in the house that she lived in, she'd often go into like the the downstairs like bathroom and be like, "What are you doing there?" She's like, "Oh, talking to the purple lady." And I'd be like, "I'm out of nope. here. I am nope. just <laughs> nope." I don't know what side or realm you're touching right now. But I do not want to get involved. Well, I think we are we are about out of time with you, but um, I just want to say congratulations on the movie and the reaction to it, which has been across the board, you know, fantastic. And uh, you know, thank you so much for for being here today and stopping by to talk a uh, little Stephen King with us. Yeah, my pleasure, and 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 thanks for reaching out to want to have this conversation, and maybe we can do it again when the movie's out and we can we can talk some spoilers, but. As you said, at the top, I, we could have talked for longer, but I guess we leave it at that for now. And, and, and thanks for the conversation. Many thanks to Lee Cronin for joining us. And uh, yeah, this is we didn't have enough time with him. We will say that right now that we feel yes. like like, you know, we kind of bonded on a spiritual and intellectual level. I believe <laughs> we kind of fell under his the hypnotic trance of his dulcet Irish tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Hopefully he had a good enough time that he'll come back. It sounds like he did. I think this is the only case that's coming to mind anyway, where we had a guest, we had a limited amount of time, but their answers were so good and, you know, well thought out. You know, he he gave substantial answers to the questions we uh, we asked right. um, that it that it made the time even briefer. <laughs> yes. And we were just and by the end of it, we were like, fuck, we wish we had another hour. Uh, so we Him will be endeavoring. I think Guillermo del Toro jumps to mind too. Because oh, that's true. Remember that Gear- true. Guillermo like kind of surprised us where it's like, cool, you have you know you have your hour, and then it's like, well, he's running late, so you have your forty five minutes. We're like, no, Guillermo. Oh, that's right. Forgot about that. Yep. Curses, Guillermo. Damn it, um, Guillermo. And it's people with crazy great hypnotic accents. What is it with yeah, those folks always only is. giving us fifty minutes of time? I just want to point out to the boys that. uh we do not have this problem when Miss Isa Lopez comes on the show to discuss everything with us. So uh, the boys need to get their act together, I guess is what we're saying. But yeah. uh, we, we lovely, we will endeavor to get him back on the show. And um, uh, I'm, I'm seeing evil dead rise this weekend, this Friday. So mm-hmm. I am, I am fully primed for this. I, I have not been as excited to see something in a theater as evil dead rise in quite some time. Yeah. I want, I want to go back. Matter of fact, this is a, you know, something I think I'm going to actually reach out to my nephews and, and say, hey, let's go see a horror movie. It's been it's been a minute and the older one can drive now, which is uh, which sucks for me because it means I'm ancient. But, uh, yes, you know, he's definitely of an age where he can handle handle it. The younger one might uh, have some nightmares, but that's that's still good. Uh, but yeah, can't it's make shit. an omelet without breaking some eggs. That's you true. Got to yeah. got to give his future therapist something to talk about, you know, exactly. So, uh, what's going on next week? Next week we have uh, a first-timer title. Actually, this is something that we've been looking for somebody to grab it, you know, for some time now. We are going to be discussing Dance Macabre, uh, which is, uh, if you don't know, it is one of King's nonfiction books. Uh, it is kind of a history of of the horror genre and literature and, and cinema and much like on writing this dude can't like just write a straight up you know nonfiction uh thing without injecting his own like biography uh into it so you get a really right. good glimpse at king what shaped king the stuff he was he was reading and watching and and how he like intellectually like scholarly like breaks down you know the different subgenres of horror and uh, uh it's kind of an an incredible little uh guidebook for anybody who's like new to horror so i read it at a perfect age of you know in my like middle school years of like here's a list of shit that i need to to watch and and read and and of course i only watched most of that stuff because i'm lazy and and uh i'm a much better movie watcher than a book reader (laughs) uh but our uh uh but yeah we're finally going to tackle that and um our guest is a director who has a high profile film out in theaters right now. And uh, yeah, that's, that's all I can say. And uh, this week on the Kingcast Patreon, we are going to be doing a little bit of a King news roundup. Been a while since we've done one of those. And uh, there's been a couple of recent uh, King developments lately that uh, we'll be talking about. You know, there's the, 
the casting from uh, the new It mini. Or I keep wanting to call it a mini series, but it's not <laughs> It uh, series ongoing series. Apparently, uh, welcome to Dairy. Um, and what was the uh, what was the second story we wanted to Boogeyman. talk about? Oh, Boogeyman. Yes. Yeah. The impending uh, release of Boogeyman. We're going to tell you what we've heard about it. Uh, we're going to. We're going to talk about that new trailer that just dropped, which was uh, excellent, in my opinion. You and I have not talked about that yet, but I mm. uh, thought it was very effective. And then we're also going to be tipping off our patrons to what we are working on for this year's big KingCast get-together. Um, we had one idea. That idea did not pan out. <laughs> I, I assure you that we worked very diligently in order to to make it happen, and we couldn't we couldn't really pull it off at the time that we wanted in the year. And uh, so we're looking at maybe putting a pin in that for right now and looping back to it next year. Um, but we do have an idea for another thing we can do that will uh, uh, scratch some of the same itches that the other idea, idea the first idea uh, did, if any of that makes sense. <laughs> um, so if you're not already subscribed to the Patreon, tune in this weekend if you want to, you know, get a little little heads up about uh what you want to be saving your money for right now um this will be a ticketed event like the uh banger and bangor that we did uh last october and uh also to get access to a fuck ton bazillion uh bonus episodes of the king cast as we um have repeatedly said here and it is the god's honest truth if you're only listening to the show on the main feed you are only getting half the show uh we've got all kinds of Interviews, commentaries, weird curveball episodes, uh, you name it. Uh, the KingCast Patreon has it. And we would like you all to come over there and join us for uh, well, for as little as $3 a month if you wanted to. Uh, but I would go with the 6 because the, the 3 is kind of the tip jar and the amount of content you get for that is very limited. While the rest of you are just getting drowned in <laughs> weekly content yes. from the KingCast. <laughs> For sure. All right. And uh, yeah, hope we'll see folks over there. And uh, in the main feed, we'll see you guys back next Wednesday. Same bat time, same bat channel for Dance Macabre. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Thank you.